This conference will now be recorded. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, once again in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We're approaching the conclusion to chapter 12. We're taking uh, another look at heaven, where we've been in verses 22 through 24. And it's been several weeks. We have not been in our Hebrew study since uh, March the 8th. So uh, we'll have to uh, pick up our context once again and try to get back up to speed. Uh, we had a similar adjustment last hour with the Colossians class, getting that resumed again after after a three-week break. And so I expect we'll do just as well here this hour as well. So we'll spend this hour in heaven. We'll remind ourselves what heaven's about. And our privilege is we're not just waiting to go to heaven someday. We operate in heaven now, today, all day, every day. We should be heavenly minded. We should be heavenly active. We're laying up treasures in heaven. We're making purchases in heaven. We are singing in heaven, praying in heaven. Our uh, heavenly priesthood takes place in heaven. We enter within the veil. We're seated at the right hand, even as Jesus is seated at the right hand. So much of our heavenly context is present tense, and we need to have the faith eyes to see it, because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our physical eyes don't see it, but our faith eyes better keep uh, keep fixed on uh, on our Savior, and that's what we're learning here. So I will advance our slideshow to where we were. And as you can see, we've done a lot in this chapter already. Let's just pick up things uh, here, I guess. When we talk about Mount Zion, and let's let's read the scriptures, and then we'll uh, we'll get to the actual outline. We've been practicing moving the Bible around on different parts of the screen, so we don't cover up the points. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 through 24. For the moment, we'll just do this, and I'll shrink it back down again. I hope you remember this, and I hope everybody at Austin Bible Church is as thankful as I am to be a church-age believer priest and not to be an Old Testament believer. The Old Testament believers, uh, they were saved, they received eternal life, but they really had a very limited access to their creator, redeemer. They had very limited access. In fact, a Gentile believer had virtually none. A Jewish believer could at least live in the land whereby the Lord would dwell, but he couldn't enter within the, the tabernacle itself. The priests and the Levites could enter into the tabernacle. But they couldn't enter into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest and only one day a year. One man all by himself could enter within the veil, could stand in the Holy of Holies, could stand before the Shekinah glory of God. What, a, what an advantage that we have. That's not us. See, our Savior replaced all that. He died on the cross and he entered within the veil. He cleansed the heavenly temple. And he entered as a forerunner so that he's not in there by himself. He's in there with all of us. He's the firstborn of many brethren. And so the contrast from Old Testament to New Testament can be made in a lot of ways. It can be understood in a lot of passages. This passage here contrasts two mountains, Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. And Mount Sinai is where the Jews went, where Israel went when they were delivered out of Egypt. And that's the mountain we did not come to. Hebrews 12, 18 says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am fear, I am full of fear and trembling. 
And that Mount Sinai experience was what forged them as a nation. They were brought out of bondage, brought out of Egypt, passed through the Red Sea. And once they were a free people in the wilderness, the first order of business was to come to this mountain and be placed under the the, uh, conditional covenant of Mosaic law. And this is what forged them as a people, as a nation, as a covenant nation. And it was a fearsome covenant with the commands that promise death at every turn. That's not our mountain. Now, that's not our experience. You and I were delivered out of a spiritual bondage. We were saved out of the the slave market of sin. And we were redeemed, uh, not through a red sea of water, but through a red sea of blood, if you will, by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross on our behalf. And just as the Red Sea was a one-way door for Israel, the blood of Christ is a one-day, one-way door for us. We are eternally secure, saved to the uttermost. There's no going back. And having been saved now, the uh, first order of business is not to take us to a Mount Sinai place of fear and to put us under bondage. No, the first order of business is to take us to the heavenly Mount Zion. And to demonstrate for us the great glory that is now ours. And uh, and I hope we appreciate this. And I hope we understand this. And I hope we live this out. And I hope we recognize that as awesome as this is, it remains a um, a place of, of reverence. It remains a place of awe that our service is is no less terrifying than Israel's service. In fact, it's more terrifying. And yet we advance in faith in such a marvelous way. And that's going to be hopefully the impact of this entire chapter. We have the heavenly view here in verses 22 through 24. And then the material we're going to see next week, this unshakable kingdom and uh, recognizing that we do serve God in acceptable service with reverence and awe reverence and awe we'll be talking about that next week for our god is a consuming fire let's not uh, forget the fact that it's the same god the same god of the old testament is the god of the new testament and uh, this is the reverence with which we should approach him and that gets us to the end of the chapter so for today we're going to focus mostly on 22 23 and 24 i'm going to shrink this bible window back down again so we can see most of our slides of what we're talking about here. So when Hebrews 12, 12 says, or 12, 22 says that we have come to Mount Zion, we understand that it is not the earthly Mount Zion. It is the heavenly Mount Zion. And that's true in the context. And it's, it's very evident that we're not talking about the Jebusite stronghold that was captured by David. We're not talking about the earthly Jerusalem. We're talking about the heavenly Jerusalem the heavenly Mount Zion. It is a spirit dimension realm. It is beyond this physical material universe. It's outside of space time. It is a spirit dimension realm, sometimes called heaven or the third heaven. And Mount Zion is uh, the highest of the heavens where God dwells. A spirit dimension realm in the presence of Yahweh. And uh, the heavenly Zion is featured in a lot of Psalms. It's featured in a lot of places. Uh, We see it in Revelation 14 where the tribulational martyrs are going to be uh, resting until the tribulation is complete. It's featured through many of the Psalms, Psalm 48, Psalm 50, Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is important because uh, we've had many times where Psalm 110 was quoted uh, already in the book of Hebrews. It's a, it's a main point of emphasis with uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That, uh, that those promises our promises in the uh, Hebrew Psalms in connection with Zion. And that's, uh, that is significant. We can't lose sight of that. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And so these are expansions upon the vocabulary, expansions upon the term, so that we don't mistake the heavenly Zion with the earthly Zion. It is not the earthly Jerusalem. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not required. I know a lot of Christians, it's very popular to uh, to make a trip to the Holy Land, to go take a tour of Israel, to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, to see the place where our Savior was crucified. Uh, I, I, I don't mock that. I don't criticize anyone that does that. Uh, but I recognize it's popular, and a lot of folks do it. But it is not commanded. That There is no 
expectation anywhere in the New Testament that a believer in the church age is required to present himself before uh, before the earthly Jerusalem. We have a much uh, better presentation to make, and that's all day, every day. We present ourselves to God the Father, having entered within the veil, standing before our God in priestly function. And it doesn't have to be the earthly Jerusalem. Jesus told that woman at the well, it is neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem that you will worship because God is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. And so the geography of the earthly Jerusalem is uh, not the center place in our stewardship as it is for uh, the Jews, for Israel in their stewardship. Mount Zion, city of the living God, the myriads of angels, the myriads of angels. Now, there were angels at Sinai, but they were invisible. They were unseen. They were unidentified. Uh, they are identified as such, though, here. And as believer priests in the New Testament, we have a better perspective for angels than any Old Testament believer ever did. And that's why if um, if a Bible church is truly teaching the whole council, a Bible church is not going to ignore the angelic realm. Sadly, I think that's a trend in our generation. That's a trend in recent years. There's been uh, a diminishing of anything angelic in recent years. And uh, and that's unfortunate because that means that uh, pastors are no longer teaching the whole counsel of the word of God. And so uh, it also means that uh, when Ephesians tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, that it's kind of a big deal. It's a pretty important issue. And if you're neglecting that, then I think, uh, undoubtedly, uh, believers are going to start looking at flesh and blood as being the problem. And believers are going to start being um, humanly focused and start being uh, misguided in what the real issues need to be in uh, in our combat. So uh, I'm thankful that, uh, that Austin Bible Church is a flock that uh, hungers after the whole council, that doesn't shy away from deep things even uh, in the angelic realm, because we are commanded to uh, to do battle against the rulers and the authorities, to resist, to stand firm, and also to be the object lessons. Ephesians 3.10 says that the angels are watching us, and that through the church, the, the manifold wisdom of God can now be made known. These things become important as well. To the myriads of angels, to the myriads of angels in festive gathering. To the myriad of angels in festive gathering. Now, here's where we got to look at the Bible again and and um, remind everyone what we looked at here several weeks ago. Um, the Greek on this is is difficult, and there's a lot of arguments and debate amongst different scholars as far as how they outline the sentence. And if you ever were trained to do sentence diagrams, that's uh, a useful skill, and it's uh, very useful in uh, in Greek as well and Hebrew when you're uh, handling a, a passage of Scripture. But even the experts themselves, the Bible translators and the scholars, they seem to have a uh, a struggle related to the general assembly, the festive gathering. And uh, I do like what the Christian Standard Bible has done. I think they have rightly uh, linked it back. I think uh, that they do better than the New American Standard and the King James and other other Bible passages. I think the, uh, and I'm forgetting now which uh, some of these, let's see. Yeah, King James separates them out. Most of them do separate them out. All right. So as we read it here, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And and I, I challenged you as we're writing these down, if you're going to make them a list, most of us will end up with a multi-numbered list, but we may have different numbers. We might choose to combine Mount Zion with City of the Living God and just call that one item. We might even take the third item as well, Heavenly Jerusalem, and put all of that into one item. Others might list them as one, two, and three. Okay, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, I tend to put them together because I think they're all referencing the same locality, Mount Zion, City of the Living God, the Heavenly Jerusalem. I'm fine with making all that one combined item number one. Then when I get to myriads of angels, I realize, okay, those are the spirit beings, the angels that uh, populate 
Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. They live there. They've been there longer than I've been there. Uh, angels have been around longer than humans. All right. And clearly, if uh, if the first three references are all synonymous for the locality, starting with the myriads of angels, we start having a reference to um, to personages, to spirit beings, beings rather than places. And so the myriads of angels are the spirit beings there in heaven. Then we get to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. Now, this is where more of the debate comes in. Should these be separated? Are they the same thing? What do we do with the general assembly? First of all, we um, we cross it off and say, I don't like that translation. Um, it's better if we uh, render it as a festive gathering. And that's what uh, is how I've rendered it on the point on the slideshow, a festive gathering and rather than linking it forward to the church of the firstborn, actually connecting it back to the myriads of angels in verse 22. And so I hope this is clear that I'm combining the myriads of angels, a festive gathering as one unit, as one phrase. So um, let me just color these now while I have it up on my screen and you see what I'm talking about. We're going to take Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's one item. And then myriads of angels in festive gathering. We'll make that another color. And then church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. We'll make that another color. See what I'm doing here? And to God, the judge of all. Going to make that another color. I'm out of colors. I can get more colors. Just not in this panel. Okay. I'll go back to uh, green again. Spirits of the righteous made perfect. Go back to yellow again. To Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The sprinkled blood. All right. Well, that's not perfect and that's not fancy, but it'll work. Okay. Story of my life. Um, not perfect, not fancy, but it'll work. You can see in alternating green, yellow, red, green, yellow, red, green. Um, really seven enumerated objects. Seven enumerated uh, concepts that all answer to the phrase, you have come, okay? You have come. And this is true for every believer, every born-again believer. Uh, when Once you receive Jesus Christ and you possess eternal life, uh, you're right here in verse 23, church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You're a part of that. And so this is what you've come to. And uh, you're in the mix here in all these seven items that we're studying, that we're appreciating that we realize that we are a part of something so much bigger than ourselves, a part of something that is so um, beyond this beyond this world, beyond the universe. It is uh, intergalactic in, in scope. Okay, it's huge, and uh, and we get to be fellow partakers uh, in Christ, the heir of all things. It's a it's a glorious thing to consider. So, um, some of the the drawbacks to the format that we have in this 11 o'clock hour is that it's not really an exegetical study. And it's not really a um, a uh, study whereby we're exegeting every jot and tittle and every word, every phrase and going through the uh, the uh, the exegesis to the nth degree. So I can't prove it to you this morning that festive gathering should be connected back to uh, the, the myriads of angels. But you will, uh, if you want, you can read the commentaries for yourself and find those that argue with it and those that uh, argue against it. I think the um, the parallel, though, is pretty easy to spot in Luke 15, 7 and Luke 15, 10. In both of those passages, our Savior testifies to the fact that the angels are really quite a festive band. 
that they rejoice, that they are delighted, that they're standing by to watch and see the good news. And when a sinner repents, they're singing, they are shouting for joy, and they are rejoicing. And so there might be human rejoicing going along. A, um, a shepherd can return with a with a lost sheep, and, and his fellow shepherd buddies are going to rejoice with him. Well, that's on earth in the visible realm. There is a, a party bigger than we can imagine that's happening in heaven because the angels are a festive gathering and that they are rejoicing when uh, when grace is in action. Likewise, when the woman finds her lost coin and uh, there is rejoicing in heaven or when the prodigal son returns to uh, to his father's house, uh, the father has a festive gathering. The older brother is a bit of a grumble budget. But the angels in heaven are rejoicing. It is a festive gathering. And so I think it's, it's, a, it's a neat thing to consider if uh, day by day we're going to remind ourselves of our heavenly position that uh, just start the day. Say, all right, Father, here we are. And uh, we, uh, the, the, this world thinks we're under quarantine. And the state of Texas thinks I'm in a, in a shelter order. That I'm staying home and staying safe. All right. Well, maybe that's where I am in in physical terms. But where am I spiritually? I have come to Mount Zion, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriads of angels in festive gathering. To myriads of angels, a festive gathering. And so I want to use today to spark some more uh, angel cheers. I want to spark some more angel hurrahs and and uh, huzzah and other hip hip hooray and whatever else i don't know whatever else the angels are going to cheer when uh, when grace is magnified and our savior is exalted uh, when a sinner repents when what was lost is found and all the different capacities in which the angels observe what we do so next we have the church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven and this is you and me. This is the body of Christ. It's a marvelous description for the body of Christ. It's a marvelous description that cannot apply to Israel. It cannot apply to Gentiles. It cannot apply to angels. It cannot apply to any stewardship other than the body of Christ, the royal family of God, to believers baptized in the union with the firstborn of all creation. The connection between Christ the firstborn and the church of the firstborn is uh, it's, it's a marvelous thing to uh, to observe. And so this becomes significant. And, and this is where we are enrolled. We are enrolled when the roll is called up yonder. I'll be there. Well, it is an enrollment. And that enrollment is a, it's a tremendous thing. The enrollment is like uh, Luke describes when the Roman Empire was taking a a, uh, a census. And all the Jews had to return to their homelands and they had to register for the census in the place of their, of their property, the place of their, of their birth. And so Mary and Joseph had to return to Bethlehem that uh, they couldn't stay in Nazareth and uh, they were to be registered for the census. They were to be enrolled. And that registration is a glorious thing because that's, uh, that's where we are enrolled in heaven, that our names are recorded in heaven. That's the uh, the marvelous thing of the Lamb's Book of Life and the registry of the bride. That's you and me, the registry of the bride. And uh, what a what a joy and a delight, because our names may not be written down in the history books. Uh, our names may not be featured on a uh, on a marquee somewhere as a great singer, a great performer. Uh, our names are, are there's a lot of places our names aren't written. But here's one place that they are written. They are written in heaven. They are recorded, and uh, and thank God for that. And so when we think about these things, and we think about these passages, and this is where I want to, I know we read these verses a couple weeks ago, but it's been a while. Let me get back to these verses here. Romans 8, 29. You think this is significant? We all like Romans 8, 28, don't we? That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Well, I think that's important because we want all things to work together for good. I want this coronavirus to work together for good. And I want the uh, time of forced uh, quarantine to, to work together for good. 
This promise says it does. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. To those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's a powerful predestination right there. And it's so much bigger than just getting saved. It's getting saved and being conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He is indeed the firstborn. And he's always been the firstborn. He's the firstborn of all creation from the foundation of the world. But now he's the firstborn among many brethren. That the brothers and sisters in Christ are a heavenly people that are in Christ. Different from Israel. Different from Gentile Old Testament saints. Different from angels. This is a unique description of us in the firstborn. Colossians 1, 15 and 18. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the icon of the invisible. Remember, you can't see God. God is spirit. God is invisible. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he is the visible member of Trinity. He is the one that was manifest to this lost and dying world. He is the icon. And uh, he is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 18 says, He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Not only firstborn of creation, firstborn of the church, firstborn of the dead. Firstborn out from the dead, which is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first ever. Any uh, resurrections before Christ were technically resuscitations. The the one that Elijah wrote, the widow's son that Elijah uh, raised from the dead, or uh, the resurrections that uh, that Elisha brought back from the dead. They returned to physical life and subsequently died again later down the road. Uh, Lazarus was brought forth from the grave. He wasn't re- resurrected. He was resuscitated, restored back to immortality. Jesus was the first to be resurrected in an immortal, glorious Resurrection body of, of, of glory, of incorruption, of what we have to look forward to. He was the first to have such a resurrected body of glory, never to die again. And that's the resurrection we will have uh, at the rapture of the church when the trumpet sounds and we get caught up to be with the Lord in the air. And so we have a resurrection that precedes the Jewish resurrection. It precedes the Gentile resurrection. And that's... uh Possibly even, we don't know what the state of the angels are going to be after we judge the angels. Uh, might they be reincorporated again in some tangible non-spirit form? Uh, we'll find out, see, because we know that our tangible body will be a spirit body. More, more to say on that. All right. Hebrews chapter 1, 6 and Hebrews 12, 23. Of course, 12, 23 is our verse today. But Hebrews 1, 6, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. You know, he brought the firstborn into the world once. And that was first advent, humble, in a manger. Angels were on hand there to worship. But boy, I tell you, when he comes back a second time, he's not laying aside his glory. There will be no kenosis at second advent. He's not going to, he's going to come in power and great glory. And the angels will, in fact, worship. All the angels will worship. And uh, the promise that gets made there. So we have the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. God, the judge of all. God, the judge of all. Now, it's interesting that we start to reach other things beyond the church at this point. The remainder of the description, let me get back to our passage. Hebrews 12, 23. If I leave it like this, we can see all three verses at once. Let's lose a little bit there. Okay. At least we can get down through the sprinkled blood. Okay, so we can see all the verses that we're looking at. You come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we have our locality. We have our spiritual heavenly locality. And this is where we are. This is where we are as believers. This is where we are as believer priests. 
Now, when we're carnal, don't think you can function here. If you're out of fellowship, don't think you can enter within the veil. Remember, the labor has to precede the, the veil. So it's important that we stay in fellowship, that we use our priesthood appropriately. But when we're in fellowship, when we have full standing as priests, we are on Mount Zion, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Secondly, we, we come to the myriads of angels in festal gathering, in festal garments or festal gathering. Thirdly, church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. Now, right there, that's a whole song on its own. Right there, you can end the song and be happy with it. And that's a, that's a glorious message right there. But it doesn't stop there. Okay? It continues. Because it's not just a matter of being there and being thrilled to be there and all the festal celebrations and, uh, and so forth. There's actually accountability. There's actually work to be done and things uh, to be accomplished looking forward. And that's what I think we get to when we look at item four, item five, item six, and item seven. All right? So we have to continue to see the rest of this glimpse of heaven. God, the judge of all. God, the judge of all. We're accountable. We are not our own gods. We are not our own judges. We are not our own standard of judgment. That uh, we do stand before our judge. And we're not just waiting for judgment day to stand before our judge. We stand before our judge now. All day, every day, we stand before our judge now. And so these things, I think, are important. Recognizing the function of judgment, recognizing the function of God as the judge. We've already studied it way back in chapter 6, that God is the judge of all, and we are accountable. There is uh, abundant testimony throughout the Old Testament that God is the sovereign of the universe, and he is the sovereign judge of the universe. He created everything, and he judges everything. It's his world. It's his universe. Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8 make that clear. Psalm 50, verses 5 and 6. Psalm 75 and verse 1. Um, like I say, this was material I think we covered three or four weeks ago. So it'll be hopefully a review for folks this morning if you've already heard this. But this is how God uh, rules. God reigns. He judges. He's in charge. I uh, love the J. Vernon McGee quote that, says, uh, you know, that that uh, God, and this is God's universe. He created this universe. It belongs to him. He's running it the way he sees fit. Uh, you may have uh, a different opinion, <laughs> as McGee put it. You may uh, think that you could run this universe that you should run this universe differently. And you may want to run this universe differently. But you don't have a universe. God has a universe. This one, he created it. And he runs it. And I appreciate that. We do want to recognize, though, that an adjustment has happened, that a progression has taken place, that the creator God of the universe has now vested judgment in the Son. And in John 5, 27, we read that he has given all judgment to the Son, and that uh, the Son of Man is now being vested by God the Father to handle all judgment capacity. And uh, so the father delegates that and is pleased to delegate the judgment to the son because the son is going to judge with righteous judgment. And uh, those principles become important. Not only does the son have judgment, but by extension, the church also has judgment. And if if this gets overlooked sometimes, if maybe it's just people don't put two and two together, but we will judge the world. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3 says, we will judge the world. It says, we will judge angels. And, uh, and it's an exciting thing to consider. But we have to, we have to hold that on the one hand, we will judge the angels. On the other hand, all judgment is given to the Son. So we either hold these two things in tension and say, are they both true? Of course they're both true. How can they both be true? How can we judge the angels if all judgment is given to the Son? Well, Maybe it's a good thing to consider who we are in Christ and the fact that we are in the Son, that we are in Christ. And so it's not diminishing the judgment that the Son has, and it's not denying the judgment that the Son has. If, in fact, the body of Christ in Christ judges the angels, it's all connected. It's all the same thing. It's a, it's a beautiful reality that doesn't contradict. It complements and the complementing of Scripture, I think, 
is uh, is a beautiful thing to study, and and it, that gets you. You got to put your thinking cap on, and you got to you got to you got to wrestle these things through. So hopefully that's clear to us as well. When we see thrones set up, when we go to Revelation 20 and we see thrones set up, I saw thrones and they sat on them. I saw thrones and they sat on them. That's marvelous. Because way back in Daniel 7, there were thrones, but nobody sat on them. There were thrones, but only the Ancient of Days took his seat. And this Son of Man came up before the Ancient of Days. And uh, if, if I can take just one side trip here this morning. If I can take one side trip here this morning. I will do that. Well, I'm going to make sure I don't run out of time first. Because I think that's uh, it's important that we don't lose that. Okay, let's take one quick side trip. And then we are going to finish this glimpse here this morning. But in Daniel chapter 7, when thrones are established. Thrones were set up. Daniel 7, 9. I kept looking until thrones, plural. How many thrones? Doesn't say how many, but there's plural. Thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And so I throw it out there, and I challenge, and I ask. I say, think about this. I do this in Ukraine when I teach the students teaching Daniel and Revelation in Ukraine. The Ancient of Days took his seat. Why does he need so many thrones? <laughs> okay. Uh, why is it thrones plural when the only one seated is the Ancient of Days? They seem like extra unneeded thrones at this point. We just don't know. There's no answers provided in this chapter. They can't be provided in this chapter because the church is a mystery unrevealed and left unexplained, but hinted at unexplained in uh, Daniel. And so here's God the Father, the Ancient of Days, taking his seat. And look who comes before him. The Son of Man is going to come before him. Get down to verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. I keep making this a point of emphasis, to be presented it's coming up in Hebrews to be presented. It's coming up in Colossians to be presented. That uh, Paul says he was laboring and striving exhaustively to present every man complete in Christ. That uh, Jesus was reconciling us to present every man perfect and complete. So this is what we're looking at here. And the Son of Man is presented. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, if you want more theology on that, uh, we'll have a systematic theology class at 4 o'clock where we're going to be talking about the kingdom of heaven and uh, the glories of this kingdom being given to Jesus Christ. In any event, back to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Now we have thrones, and now they are seated. There is a plurality. A corporate body is seated, and judgment was given to them. Now, if all judgment has been given to the Son, why does the Son need plural thrones? I asked you earlier, why does the Ancient of Days need plural thrones? Well, now I'm asking, why does the Son need plural thrones? Clearly, it's because the Son has a body and bride in Christ, that require the plural thrones. And that's what we see here. And then we're going to watch and we're going to observe the resurrection of Old Testament saints and the awards that are given to them in uh, in a beautiful and very powerful way. All right. Judgment. God, the judge of all. God, the judge of all. And uh, the one that we're accountable to. Remember, we belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. And this is uh, this is our chain of command. This is our accountability. We're not just uh, we didn't save ourselves and we're not free to uh, to rule ourselves or judge ourselves. We answer before our savior. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now, they're tucked in here after God, the judge and before Jesus. 
and they're tucked in here before the sprinkled blood. And this is where I think the order of this starts to have an impact. Uh, the, the why are we now seeing these spirits, the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Well, we have the chain of command established. We have our place within the chain of command established. We have the principle of judgment being mentioned. And now that judgment has been referenced, now we can talk about the folks that we're going to be judging, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Mentioned after God the judge and before Jesus, mentioned before the sprinkled blood. Who are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? These are the Old Testament saints, Jews and Gentiles, not yet bodily resurrected, but waiting for their future bodily standing upon the earth. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. What we would call Old Testament saints. This would be Old Testament believing Jews, Old Testament believing Gentiles. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. Not yet resurrected. They're still disembodied spirits waiting for their future resurrection, waiting for their future bodily standing upon the earth. This, uh, I think, is clear related to what Jews and Gentiles alike were looking forward to, what Jews and Gentiles alike were uh, anticipating, not just in this life, but in the life to come. And for this, uh, we can take a look at Job 19, verses 25 through 27. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. And recognize, this is a Gentile context. This is pre-Abrahamic. There is no Abrahamic covenant yet. There is no promise to the Jewish people that in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is purely pre-Abrahamic Gentile promise that they have a future resurrection, that they have a Redeemer. This is uh, the salvation uh, by grace through faith in the coming one that crushes the serpent's head, the seed of the woman. That uh, as Genesis 3 promised, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden and Gentiles were promised that the seed of the woman would arise and crush the serpent's head. And so much more doctrine goes into that, not recorded in Genesis 3, but spoken by prophets and explained as animal skins would clothe the nakedness. And this is the the soteriology, the salvation doctrine that uh, Job had available to him in his generation. He says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last or on the last day, he will take his stand on the earth. So think about all the doctrine that goes into this. It's like uh, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam who prophesied of the second advent. And said, so the Lord will come with many, with myriads of his holy ones. So the uh, the Gentiles understood the coming of Yahweh. They understood the coming of Messiah, the coming of the Redeemer. It says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Recognizing that redemption must be personally accepted. That redemption is a personal acceptance by grace through faith. It's not a corporate Redeemer. It's a personal Redeemer. My Redeemer lives. And uh, nobody gets saved by being part of the right church or being a, having a membership in the Catholic church or being a Jewish person by race or any other corporate belonging. Redemption is personal. Believing in the grace of God, believing in the gospel, believing in God the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who believes in Jesus has eternal life. And Job was a believer. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Not only does he have a relationship with his Redeemer, he knows that he is the living God. He is the liver. He hasn't yet been uh, entered this world in the first advent. He has not yet been made flesh to dwell among us. The seed of the woman is not yet present, but he is already living. That's key. And then he says, at the last, he will take a stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will see God. Job realizes, every generation has to realize, they may not live long enough to see Second Advent. They may not live long enough to see the kingdom on earth. And yet, even after their skin is destroyed, that's not the end of their story. They will be resurrected on the last day with the living Redeemer. From my flesh, I shall see God. 
And so when uh, Job is resurrected at Revelation 20, when we're seated on those thrones, we're going to see Job standing before us to receive his reward. How glorious is that? From my flesh I will see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. My heart faints within me. This is uh, the song that Job writes related to this. Daniel likewise anticipated his resurrection and was told, Daniel 12:13, the final verse of Daniel 12. But as for you, go your way to the end, then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So Daniel didn't live long enough to see the kingdom on this earth. Daniel physically died in the 5th century, 6th century BC. And uh, he's still dead to this day, but you know where his spirit is? You know where Job's spirit is? Both Job and Daniel are spirits of the righteous made perfect. And they are mentioned. They are in heaven right now. Jesus took captivity captive, transferred all of those Old Testament saints to uh, to the third heaven. So the spirits of the righteous made perfect would include Job, would include Daniel, would include all of these Old Testament saints that we're talking about. You will enter into rest. They are at rest as they are in the heavenly places. And they will rise again for their allotted portion at the end of the age. The idea of being made perfect is important because if it wasn't for us, if it wasn't for Jesus and the church, none of them would be made perfect. This was the conclusion to Hebrews chapter 11. If you could consider such a thing, apart from us, see, God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. If it wasn't for the body and bride of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for Jesus and his victory on the cross and his ascension, if it wasn't for the plan of God to unfold in just this exact way, then Job and Daniel would not be featured in this uh, in this song. They would not be on Mount Zion in the city of the living God. They would not be with the myriad of the angels in festal gathering. They would still be in Sheol in the compartment of comfort. They would still be enfolded in Abraham's bosom, and Abraham would be there as well. In order to be made perfect, in order to have their sin removed, in order to be led captive, to be brought before the Father, requires uh, Jesus and his victory and requires us, requires his bride. And this is the statement that's made. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. So this is uh, this is interesting to me. This is... This is, um, we have to ask ourselves why. Why didn't God just leave them in the in Sheol? Why didn't he just leave them in Abraham's bosom? Why didn't he just leave them down there across the gulf? They could still be there now. They could still be looking across the chasm and uh, talking to unbelievers. They could still be down there now. Why did they get brought to heaven? Why were they there? Say, well, God observed, God loves an audience and he wants guests at his wedding feast for his son. And uh, these spirits are there. And it's not only the bride that's there, but the guests are there as well to observe how beautiful the bride is, to observe how beautiful the groom is. And uh, to, for, so the joy of theirs can be made full. John the Baptist said the, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices because he knows he's not the bridegroom, but he rejoices on behalf of the bridegroom. And I believe this is why the spirits of the righteous made perfect are uh, are, are listed here in uh, in Hebrews chapter 12. Two more items. Two more items. We have Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. <clears throat> to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood. Sprinkled on the heavenly temple, sprinkled on us, but not yet applied to the nation of Israel. I hope we get this, and I hope uh, we've taught it in chapter 8. We taught it again in chapter 9. I mentioned it again in chapter 10, and uh, now I'm mentioning it here in chapter 12. This is at least the fourth time that I've taken the time to walk us through this principle. And to me, it's vital. To me, it clears up so many trouble spots. It clears up so many problems that people have with the church and the new covenant and confusion that they have when they try to make the church party to the new covenant. 
And uh, when here the plain language is, uh, when we come to heaven, that's where the mediator of the new covenant is. He's not yet on this earth. He's not yet returned. The Father hasn't said, go forth and rule in the midst of your enemies. The Father has still said, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The mediator of the new covenant is still seated. He has not yet returned in second advent. The sprinkled blood is sprinkled and not yet applied to the nation of Israel. I hope we're clear on this. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So for anyone that wants to say the new covenant is already in effect on this earth, I would ask them, well, then why is the mediator still in heaven? The mediator has not come to this earth. The kingdom has not yet come to this earth. The new covenant has not yet been made. It can't be made till after the tribulation. And it can't be made until Israel accepts the terms. And Israel is not yet repentant. All of these things have to come together. So let's look at these and remind ourselves. What was that that we were studying in in, uh, Hebrews 8? But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Because he was faithful, because he accomplished what he was called to do. Notice the, the earthly priests, they serve a copy and a shadow. He serves the reality. And now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. This is what he will exercise when he returns in second advent. This is what will be applied. He is qualified to be the mediator. Keep that in mind. He's the mediator. We're the ministers. We are in him. All of these principles become important. Hebrews 9.15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so the new covenant is designed to replace Mosaic law. New covenant is designed to deal with the transgressions of the old covenant. Those transgressions, by the way, aren't done yet. You ever thought about that? You thought about every transgression that the Jewish people have ever done against Mosaic law, they still got more to go. When uh, the church is raptured and Israel resumes their stewardship, Israel will resume their transgressing of Mosaic law. And so additional transgressions need to be dealt with, and they will be dealt with when Jesus brings them under the rod of the covenant. To the sprinkled blood. Well, where's the blood sprinkled? Hebrews 9.21. Well, he sprinkled the tabernacle. He sprinkled the vessels of ministry with blood the copies were sprinkled and the realities were sprinkled jesus went to heaven and he sprinkled the heavenly temple we enter the holy place by the blood of jesus by a new and living way we have uh, our conscience sprinkled clean our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience our bodies washed with pure water the temple's been sprinkled the bride has been sprinkled Israel's not yet been sprinkled. Israel's still waiting to be sprinkled. The blood has not yet been applied to the Jewish nation. I hope, we, uh, hope we're clear on that. We took the time to, uh, to take a look at Exodus 24, 8, and we saw how uh, until the people could be sprinkled with blood, it has to be set aside. In, in Exodus 24, 6, Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. Why did he set it aside? Why is the blood just sitting there in basins? Because he's getting it ready. Then the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So think about what Jesus did. He went to the cross, took his blood, put some of it in basins. The other half he took and he sprinkled on the altar. He went to heaven and he cleansed the heavenly altar. But then the people have to be prepared. The Jewish people. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. Well, I'm sorry. The nation of Israel has not yet accepted the blood of Jesus Christ. The Jewish people are still in defiance of the blood of Jesus Christ. And until they're humbled through the tribulation of Israel, they won't be prepared to receive the sprinkled blood. But it will happen. 
He will sprinkle them. He will sprinkle them at second advent. We want to be clear on that. The sprinkled blood of Jesus. It's been applied to the heavenly temple. It's been applied to us. It has not yet been applied to the nation of Israel. Hope we get that. And the sprinkled blood of Jesus and its well-spoken message. The blood of Jesus speaks, and it speaks volumes. It's well-spoken message. It is the ultimate testimony. It is greater than Abel's testimony. It is greater than every Old Testament testimony of faith that's ever been offered up. This is the way, this is how chapter 12 ties together all of chapter 11 and 12. This is how chapter 12 ties everything together in these two chapters. The blood of Jesus speaks, and it speaks better than the blood of Abel. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks. The blood of Abel testifies. The blood of Jesus speaks. And the blood of Jesus testifies. And the blood of Jesus is what speaks loudly. It speaks eternally. It speaks infinitely. It speaks to the Father's infinite satisfaction. You remember, uh, oh, I don't know, way back in the 1970s or 1980s. I mean, it was way back, probably the 1980s, I'm guessing. Used to be uh, a television commercial for E.F. Hutton. And when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Remember that? And it it became, this was a meme before there were memes. But when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. That was the, that was the catchphrase. That was the, the advertising blitz. Well, if I can adapt that. When the blood of Jesus Christ speaks, God the Father listens. God the Father listens. The eternal satisfaction of God the Father by the speaking blood of Jesus Christ. This is, uh, this is the ultimate faith testimony. We've been talking about faith testimonies all the way through from Hebrews 11, 4, all the way through the end of chapter 12. And so by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Abel, Abel's actions spoke. His, his words, his deeds of faith spoke, through which he obtained the testimony, through which by his sacrifice a witness was obtained. He obtained a witness. Testimony was offered. But I tell you, the blood of Jesus speaks more loudly than the blood of Abel. Uh, you and I don't have eternal life. By the blood of Abel, you and I have eternal life by the blood of Jesus. That's the testimony. Okay. And I hope we get this. I just got an amen on a red bubble. All right. Thank you for that. The blood of Jesus still speaks. And all of these other speakings, all of these other testimonies, it's the blood of Jesus that speaks. Okay. Well, that finishes that when we come back next week let me show you where we're going next i'm out of time we want to have we don't have a closing hymn but we do have a closing prayer let me show you where we're going next how does chapter 12 end since we're here what's the warning okay we spent these weeks focusing on where we are now what so what you know, okay, we're here. Great. We're in heaven. Oh, but the sprinkled blood and the speaking of that sprinkled blood. And so see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay. Remember who's speaking? The sprinkled blood is speaking. And see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So in this awesome privilege that we have to enter within the veil, to stand before the Father with the body of Christ and in attendance with the Old Testament saints observing, but here we are standing with our Savior, with the blood of Christ speaking. We better not refuse him who is speaking. We better not dismiss him who is speaking. We better be ever mindful of him who is speaking because it's Jesus and his sprinkled blood that's speaking. We are like uh, 
like any bride, we should be listening to uh, to our sinless bridegroom. Do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. You know, Jesus is head of the church. He is seated. We are seated in his right hand. And he is not silent. He is speaking. His His sprinkled blood is speaking. And we must not refuse the commands that our Savior utters. So this is what our this is what our daily walk is about. This is what our priesthood is about. This is what our ambassadorial function is about. This is what our soldier function is all about. It's about you and I in the heavenly places not refusing him who is speaking. So that's what we'll be dealing with starting next week in verses 25 through 29. Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this message. And I pray, Father, that we get excited about Hebrews. We get excited about our priesthood. We get excited about our Savior and his sprinkled blood because it's speaking to us, Father. It speaks to us today as we enter within the veil, as we stand before your glory, as we not refuse the speaking of our Savior. Day by day, moment by moment, we are fellow workers. We are laborers in the field. We are prayer warriors. We are engaged in this angelic conflict. Father, all of these powerful truths center upon our active participation in the heavenly places in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we recognize our, our place. Thank you, Father, for the powerful truth of this, of this chapter, of this book. I pray that we live it out in a glorious way, not trying to usher in the kingdom, not trying to <clears throat> fulfill the covenant, but fulfill our own role as the body and the bride. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.